Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the Loving Liberty program. Going to get started today with an inspirational story, and this is going to start with a weird twist because this inspirational story starts with a plane crash. Yeah, I know. It's like, well, okay. <laughs> uh, and then they all died and went to heaven. No, it's, it's, it's something quite remarkable. And I'm looking at the calendar and thinking, has it really been 30 years? Yeah, July 19th, 1989, Sioux City, Iowa. You know the one I'm talking about, right? The big DC-10, Flight 232, United Flight 232, uh, lost a number of their control systems in flight. According to the manual, it's impossible for them to have the malfunction that they're having. And uh, somehow, as, as I'm going to explain here in this story, through a miracle between the captain, the co-pilot, and another pilot and flight instructor who just happened to be a passenger on that plane and had helped to, to, to teach how to fly DC-10s. Between those three men, they were able to get United 232 back on the ground. Although, when you hear what they, what they were up against and what they were trying to accomplish, you'll wonder that anybody survived. But uh, as it is... They had this catastrophic engine failure. It cut all the hydraulics in the plane. Um, the flight manual covered all in, covering all the possibilities never considered that that might happen. In fact, when Captain Haynes, the pilot of the plane, uh, told airline officials in San Francisco, he was told, you're mistaken. <laughs> when he was telling him, here's the problem, here's what, what's happening. So they got the plane to uh, Sioux City, Iowa, just as they were bringing it in to the runway, uh, they're using the throttles. No, no, uh, you know, regular controls to try to control the aircraft. The aircraft pitched to one side, caught a wingtip and, and cartwheeled. But here's the kicker. Out of 296 people on board, 184 crew and passengers survived. In fact, a majority of them walked away, literally walked away from this plane crashing next to the runway, and then going off into a cornfield. Now, 112 people died, and that's a huge tragedy. The reason I bring this up is because um, Captain Haynes, Al Haynes, passed away here recently. And he, of course, was asked to go out and speak a lot about Flight 232. There were, I think, in fact, a number of uh, really uh, well-selling books, <laughs> a number of, uh, of very compelling stories came out of those who survived. The remarkable thing to me, and I watched a video on this, uh, oh, it's, it's been a couple of years ago. The flight, the, or the, I'm sorry, the, the pilot instructor and other pilot who was there as a passenger was describing the remarkable coincidence that put him on that plane at that time. In fact, that was one of the really uh, remarkable things. I'm trying to remember his name, um, Fitch, something Fitch. But uh, he was uh, he was scheduled to uh, he was scheduled to get on another flight that departed five minutes earlier. But instead, he ended up on flight 232. Dennis Fitch, that was the guy's name. 
This is here are a couple of the the things that just really struck me about this story. So they had a, a catastrophic engine failure. Apparently, an engine came apart. When it did, the flying parts cut not only the main hydraulic systems, but they cut the redundant hydraulic systems that would have allowed them to continue to control the plane. And after this accident, aviation experts uh, conducted a number of simulations in which test pilots and trainer pilots tried to land similarly stricken aircraft. And according to Mike Hamilton, a United pilot who flew with Dennis Fitch, he says, I am not aware of any that replicated the success that these guys had. In other words, none of the simulator pilots were able to make a survivable landing. Most of the simulations never even made it close to the ground before losing control and, and losing the aircraft. In fact, more than two decades later, the, t- later, the teamwork of Dennis Fitch and Al Haynes and others on the flight deck is still considered a model for the airline industry. Susan Callender was a flight attendant on, attendant on flight uh, 232. She says to be one of those pilots, they are all heroes. And speaking of Al Haynes, she said he played an instrumental role in saving all those lives. What they all did, all working together as a team, now for the rest of history, will be part of the training of flight crews. Absolutely amazing. And I'm trying to remember, I think, I think the, the documentary that I saw was mostly uh, from, the, uh, from the viewpoint of Dennis Fitch. And it was really incredible. I think one of the best things that uh, that came out of that was he felt like fate had placed him there. And I don't know that I'm a I don't know that I'm really a, a person who says, you know, well, it's all fate. Everything that happens is just fate, fate, fate. You know, because there are people who will say, well, if, if God was involved, if God made a miracle happen, why didn't he stop the crash from happening in the first place? OK, fair question. And at the same time. It's hard to look at that incident and not feel like something miraculous took place. I, okay, here's for what it's worth. This is, this is how I justify how do bad things happen in a universe where God is clearly in control. And for what it's worth, this is my take. We live in a world that is governed by natural laws. One of those natural laws would be if you are in a mechanical machine or a mechanical uh, contraption like an airplane... There is the possibility of some kind of a mechanical failure. And when that mechanical failure affects the ability of that plane to remain controllable and airborne, gravity is eventually going to bring that aircraft down to the earth and uh, very likely will do so in a way that uh, will kill everybody aboard, depending on how, you know, how fast they're going, how high they are and so forth. But, you know, these are these are the natural laws that govern this world. Having said that, I still believe that even in in those times where, you know, those natural laws kick in, sometimes miraculous things can take place. For me, the fact that Denny Fitch was actually uh, hitching a ride home on that aircraft 30 years ago and went up to see if he could help the crew when he heard, you know, some kind of an explosion, you know, the engine coming apart back in the back. I think it's a miracle that he was there and had the understanding that he did. And and they innovated because there was nothing in the manual that told him you should do this and then do this. 
the manual could not anticipate the, what do they call them, cascading failures that were, were taking place aboard that aircraft. And they sat there and they flew lazy circles that brought them closer and closer to the runway at Sioux City, Iowa, for about uh, 45 minutes. But the miracle to me is they didn't really have control of that aircraft in, in the sense that what they were doing was just simply, well, let's try this. Let's let's try this. Using the throttle, using, uh, you know, some input for from the, the steering, they somehow managed to get that plane close enough to the airport and close enough to the ground that the majority of people on board were able to walk away from it, even though the aircraft crashed once it reached a certain point. I don't know. Maybe it's a case of, you know, the glass is half empty, the glass is half full. Um, I'm choosing to see the glass as half full and the other half full of miracles. No, I, I just, I see some remarkable things that took place here, but I've never forgotten the story of, of how the right combination of people at the right time and in the right place made a difference. Otherwise, you could have written off all 296 people. It's rare when an airliner goes down that, uh, that people survive. I mean, it's just, look, the, the nature of physics is something big falls from the sky. Um, it's usually not very pretty. It's, it, it's going to result in, in, in deaths. But most of the people survived. It's tragic, the ones who didn't. And, and by the way, for Captain Haynes, my understanding is for the rest of his life, he, he was haunted by the fact that, uh, you know, 100, I think 119, maybe 112 people did die in that wreck. But it's an amazing story. I'll post a couple of links in the show notes page. You can check it out for yourself. I think that it is one of the one of those curiosities. I'll leave it to your associations to decide, you know, did God have a hand in inspiring these guys? Hey, try this, do that, you know, that ended up saving lives. I'm not going to answer it for you, but uh, I find it a fascinating story. And since... uh, Captain Haynes has just passed away. I thought that would be an interesting uh, thing to commemorate here on this show. 30 years ago. Has it really been 30 years? I guess so. All right. We have other things to cover, but hopefully my inspiring plane crash story has sparked something in your heart that propels you towards higher realms. (laughs) We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. Gosh, I'm just, I've dug a little deeper. Even during the break, I was just going over some of the notes uh, regarding that, uh, that plane crash in Sioux City, Iowa. And uh, I, I'm, just, I'm just absolutely spellbound by how things turned out and how much worse they could have been. One of the more, uh, one of the comments that really jumped out at me was uh, someone, a pilot, who had made the comment. Uh, this was not one of the pilots on the flight, but just someone else who uh, was commenting on the story said that uh, when, the, when the hydraulic systems failed on that flight, 232, every person on that plane was dead the moment those hydraulic systems failed. 
because the reality was there was just no way to control that plane and get them safely back on the ground. So as soon as the hydraulic systems were down, their lives were done. They just, you know, were were waiting for the inevitable cash in. But these brave individuals, these uh, the the pilot, the co-pilot, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting who the other, there was one other f- member of the flight crew there on the flight deck, and then uh, Dennis Fitch, who stepped up there to help. Being able to pull off a solution under impossible odds and assemble a team on the fly, I, can't, I just can't think of a, a better definition of, of leadership. And the humility that these guys carried with them. You know, Denny Fitch passed away from uh, brain cancer here just a couple of years ago. Captain Al Haynes just died recently within the last few days. But these guys, uh, when they when they would speak of what happened, Captain Haynes, you know, spoke. I think he said I think it said seventeen hundred times he had gone around and spoke about this. And often that people would pay him an honorarium, you know, to a speaker's fee or at least cover his expenses. He always donated that money to charity. Anyway, okay, I got to move on, but it's it's a fascinating story to me, and I hope it uh, it gives you something to consider, like it did me. All right, you ready to dive into some meaty stuff here? Let's do this. Let's talk about income inequality. You hear a lot about this, and it seems to imply that, well, if we're not all making the right amount of money, then, you know, somebody's getting rich at my expense. And it's, it's part of what uh, I've heard referred to as the gospel of envy. And it really does seem to have a kind of uh, life of its own, like a gospel. There are people out there proselytizing and trying to find adherence to it. But what exactly does the gospel of envy offer? Well, this article by Anders Kos- Koskinen. Anders Koskinen on intellectualtakeout.org points out how easy it is to fall into the trap of comparisons. Now, he says for himself, he says it can be very hard not to look at how my friends or acquaintances are doing and not feel that I'm running behind. Houses, cars, paychecks, life state, the temptation to grouse over what I think I don't have is very strong. Now, he says money's always been a point of stress, and maybe that's due to his overly self-sufficient streak. He says, rationally, I know I need to relax. I should instead focus on being grateful for what I do have. But he also says there are many of us who are far less concerned with how well we're doing and instead see only how much worse off we are than our neighbors at the top of the hill. Well, let's look at the bottom of the hill. Worldwide, he points out the definition of poverty is living on $1.90 a day or roughly $693.50 for the year, less than one-seventh of the lowest poverty threshold in the United States. And he says over 730 million people around the globe live on this amount or less. Now, by contrast, the U.S. has a median disposable income of $32,075, making it one of the highest income countries in the world. In 2017, the United States' official poverty rate was 12.3%, meaning 40.2 million Americans fell under the Census Bureau's rather liberal definition of poverty, even at just $5,121 annually per person. The lowest possible threshold for American poverty is vastly higher and reached at a rate not much higher than the much more stringent standards of the World Bank. 
People living in the United States of America have it better than perhaps any other people in the history of the world. But despite this, our politicians still seek to divide us based on our income. One example is the wealth tax proposed by presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren, which would tax net worth between $50 million and $1 billion at a 2% rate and any net worth in excess of a billion dollars at 3%. Now, this is not income. These are either assets which have already been taxed, are currently being taxed, or will be taxed at a later point. So it's questionable whether these wealth taxes will actually work. It's also questionable that they were ever intended to actually accomplish the stated goals. Greed, division, and jealousy are powerful tools for achieving tribalism and stirring up political fervor. But while Democratic candidates decry divisiveness and incivility, are they actually stoking the class warfare rhetoric of the early 20th century? Senator Elizabeth Warren complains on her campaign site, a small group of families has taken a massive amount of the wealth of American workers, of the wealth American workers have produced, while America's middle class has been hollowed out. Now, as the as the author here points out, the grievance culture runs deep. But the evidence for such an attitude really doesn't. We have more than we've ever had before. We continue to gain more every year. It does us no good to covet our neighbor's possessions. In fact, doing so only seems to enrich the campaign coffers and swell the egos of politicians who want to divide Americans, not to not unite them. So the takeaway here from Anders Koskinen is that the world is doing very well and continuing to get better. Wealth taxes and estate taxes have nothing to do with this. The villain, the villain is not income inequality. The villain is poverty, regardless of any comparison point. New and higher taxes cannot solve the deficit or income inequality or buy you everything you ever wanted. There will always be politicians who promise that if you'd only empower them to operate other people's money, then all will be right in the world. But he finishes with the question, would America be a happier, less contentious place if more people took time to be grateful and count the blessings of living in this country? Okay, I think that's probably a a worthwhile question to be asking. Look, I, I fall into the trap, too. I try not to. But sometimes that that desire that that urge to keep up with the joneses is really powerful and it's not always just the money it's just you know when you start comparing yourself to other to others you're falling into the the status trap and the longer i live the more i become convinced that that's uh, that's a huge stumbling block best avoided because if you if you're clamoring for status or if you give your uh, deference to people or your respect to people based on their perceived status. You're missing out on a couple of things. Case in point, if uh, if we get all googly eyed when someone in authority or someone who is uh, well recognized, you know, comes near and, and come on, we've all seen this. Sometimes politicians, sometimes movie stars or singers or whatnot. But somebody who is is of, you know, celebrity status we're kind of trained to feel like, well, this is someone special. We need to treat them with, with uh, you know, specialness. We should bow. We should scrape, you know, and that sort of thing. No. Because if that's what you look for as, as the, the standard to, well, this is where my respect has to go, to someone who has, you know, more status than me, 
you're going to miss out on meeting some of the most incredible, decent, and influential people who, uh, who may not be well-known. And, and you know what I'm talking about. Good human beings living good lives who make wherever they happen to be standing at that moment a better and brighter place. And it's not dependent on their wealth or their IQ or their societal titles or degrees or anything like that. It's just by being a decent human being. But if you're caught up looking for status, you might miss some of these individuals. That'd be a shame, wouldn't it? Thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. All right, so I've been talking about the best in people. I'm going to take a little shift. Uh, This is going to turn toward the darker side of human nature. But what an amazing commentary from uh, Paul Rosenberg. And and it goes back to a question I was asking a little bit earlier this week, uh, thanks to an article by Jacob Hornberger about, uh, hey, why why did the press suddenly become such, uh, uh, well, such deferential... uh, such deferential, uh, you know, accommodators of of the official version of what happened to Jeffrey Epstein. And I think it's it's been fascinating to see that Epstein story start to slowly disappear down the memory hole. Oh, yeah, well, that's over and done. You know, the authorities said it was suicide. So no questions here. Move along, citizen. Don't listen to that guy at the microphone. Just move along. And it makes me wonder why there isn't more... Um, I don't know if outrage is the right word, but at least interest. Why aren't people asking more questions? I mean, it seems so blatantly convenient that this guy who uh, may or may not have had the goods on a number of very wealthy, very influential people, financiers and business owners and um, politicians from all around the world. There are possible intelligence connections Maybe he was blackmailing some of these people and suddenly he suicides in quotation marks while he's in official custody under suicide watch. Hmm. I mean, it's just it's convenient how that worked out, right? Assuming that maybe there are some very powerful people who didn't really want his story gaining any further traction. Now, I'm saying that just as a possibility. I don't know anything that you don't know. But it leaves a lot of questions and you wonder why wouldn't people... Want to follow through on that? I mean, it would force us to confront some things that we probably don't want to consider. Paul Rosenberg does a good job of explaining this. He says it's profoundly dangerous to teach people things they're not ready to learn. That's why people who see pedophilia in high places keep their mouths shut. If they speak up, they're likely to be chopped up by the friends of the pedophiles and to the approval of an uncomfortable public. He says, I presume also this is why women shut their mouths after being abused. If you tell people what they don't want to know, they'll be glad when you are swept away. But he says the unspoken parts 
of such things are the implications they cast. If Uncle Henry is a rapist, how come I love him? If President X is a lifelong abuser of women, why did I vote for him twice and defend him a hundred times? If Prince Jimmy molests teenagers, how come I adore the royal family? And Paul Rosenberg says it's the self-contradiction that people don't want to face in all this. Calling some math teacher a monster isn't a problem. It's the, the issue is everything attached to it. Americans, for example, are taught that we are the good guys, that our system is constructed with such genius that it always writes itself and that it produces the highest grades of freedom and righteousness. But if our presidents, senators, and important men feed on the fear and gullibility of teenage girls, if the magic system, right down to the cops, reliably protects sexual abusers, then what we believed was wrong. And we are ruled by monsters in makeup and suits. And Paul Rosenberg says that is simply too much to take, at least for a large number of people. So they avoid the subject and they wait for a respectable reason to wash it away with a wave of denial. So what about the Epstein affair? Rosenberg says it's too early to know what will come of this. Of course, there will be some kind of public investigation, but most likely it will result in a few prison guards going to jail, maybe a supervisor or two. Ho-hum, the people in robes have spoken. Nothing more to see. Go back to your comfortable illusions and be sure to shout conspiracy theory at anyone who brings it up again. Still, he says the Epstein affair may have some effect. The acts of the pedophile class were so open that some percentage of the populace won't want to forget. Consider the one and only job, arguably the most prominent of, of the most prominent correctional facility in, in uh, the United States was to keep this man alive for trial. His death by whatever method made it clear that the deep state can and does overpower the public state. His list of friends makes it very clear that power and pedophilia are partners. And finally, this pimp to the powerful and twisted was protected openly and over a long period of time. Will this sink into the general public, he asks? It's hard to say, but more or less everyone agrees that it reeks. And he says, consider some of the people who were happy to befriend this man. Let's forget their names and just consider their positions. At least one U.S. president. A big-time royal dude, a U.S. senator, a U.S. governor, a large number of super-rich people, a super-famous entertainment guy, other famous entertainment guys, a super-famous lawyer, famous professors. And Paul Rosenberg says more than that, a lot of these people remained his friends after he was convicted and jailed. At a minimum, these people had to be hopelessly stupid and he says, I'm not sure many of them are. And what if it stands that behind, what if, and what if what stand? he says, and if what stands behind this wasn't a Forrest Gump level of stupidity, then what was it? So now the question remains, so what do we do about it, huh? Well, Paul Rosenberg says, first of all, don't jump to conclusions. Stay with facts and forget about crusading for justice because going too far is what the pedophiles need you to do. It's what empowers Denial. When talking to someone about this, make one point, then walk away. Let people absorb the one fact, which takes time. 
Pushing people to accept everything at once is something we do for our own satisfaction, not for their benefit. This is a marathon, not a sprint. If you do your job, facts will accumulate in people one by one. Then, at some point in the future, they'll be able to see the full picture without existential terror. I think that's pretty good advice. And, and I've seen his approach used with uh, a f- pretty fair amount of success. I, I've always heard it likened to planting one seed. Plant one seed at a time. Let people come to the truth on their own terms. Now, see, I'm, I have a little bit of a quandary here in, in terms of I want to know. I want to I want to see, and if I, can, if I can see it, and if I can show it, help others see the absolute corruption of the systems that want to rule us. And I think this may be one of the finest examples, or potentially one of the finest examples, of, of what happens when you have people who are constantly told, you are so great, you are so great, you are above the law, you are above normal human beings. You tell people that over and over again, and, and I'm stereotyping here, but politicians hear this a lot. The very wealthy, the very famous hear this a lot. Why should we be surprised when they start believing it and start acting like it? I am so powerful, and I am so wealthy, and I am so well-connected that if I want to indulge my more base instincts— even with an underage female, yeah, I can do that. Why? Because I'm me and I'm not you. You're one of the little people. I think it's absolutely possible. And at the same time, I think that uh, this is one of those very few areas where we still have the capacity for outrage. We will look the other way when someone goes and starts a war, an honest-to-goodness war that kills thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of innocent people or at the very least displaces them and you know turns their lives upside down we don't even think twice we just buy right in well it's to keep me safe that's uh, this is all about keeping me safe but most people who at least believe themselves in some way to be decent still have a pretty healthy sense of revulsion at the idea of someone being a sexual predator, particularly if their predatory activities take them after underage or minor children. So this could shake our faith in uh, the people who head up many of these systems that, uh, that seek to rule us. It could show them to be ugly, power-hungry, not worthy of our support. And I think this is probably what they fear the most. See, one of the most powerful lessons we, we tend to forget is that consent is the magic word that changes everything. Politicians can only get away with what they decree, the words they put on paper, the pronouncements they make. If people consent, if you lend your consent, you withdraw that consent, and just like Etienne Delaboite wrote in his... Uh, Discourse on voluntary servitude, take away the consent, and they will collapse, just like the Colossus of old would fall without the support. You don't have to go after him head on. You don't need pitchforks and torches. You just have to know where that line is in the sand where you can say, I don't consent to this, and turn your back. 
Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I've really become a fan of John Miltimore, who is one of the uh, he's one of the editors for the Foundation for Economic Education and just a remarkable writer. Uh, What a head this guy has on his shoulders. He's got a great slant on the world. And so whenever I see him post something, I'm like, yeah, I think that's that's worth checking out. And I'm very I, I don't think I've ever been disappointed. But he had an article that was actually published back in February of 2018. So this one's been around for a year and a half or so. Six logical fallacies to look out for in the gun debate. Now, this is, you know, specifically applying to gun control. But these fallacies, if you can learn to spot them. Or better still, learn to eliminate them from how you argue your point of view. It'll make you much more effective in getting your message across. This is the thing I love about logic. Is uh, I, and I'm not an expert by any means, you know. I, I I do have a copy of Logic for Dummies, but uh, when we got into Boolean logic, I, I kind of drifted off, and so I I can't say I have any kind of expertise here. But I know this: logic helps you to construct more sound arguments. It doesn't mean you're going to be right every time, but a person who understands and applies logic to how they construct their arguments isn't going to be wrong as often either. Does that make sense? You won't be right all the time, but you won't be wrong very often. So let's talk about these six logical fallacies to look for in the gun debate, since red flag laws and other gun control measures are being, you know, bandied about and all the the typical buzzwords being thrown about. Here are some that you should watch out for. This will protect you from irrational thinking. Number one, non sequitur. John Miltimore writes, non sequitur translates as it does not follow. And they are more common in casual conversation than in formal debate. For example, I can't believe you didn't like The Last Jedi. You love The Empire Strikes Back and Mark Hamill's in The Last Jedi. Well, it doesn't follow that uh, all fans of the original Star Wars trilogy will like The Last Jedi just because Luke is in, the mil- is in the movie. In the gun debate, the argument sometimes devolves into non sequiturs. For example, I don't support the murder of innocents, therefore I don't vote Republicans since Republicans su- support the Second Amendment. Here's the tweet. If you continue to vote Republican, you tacitly support the murder of children. Hashtag Parkland. Hashtag repeal the second. Or this one, the NRA used to say over my cold, dead body. Actually, it was for my cold, dead hands. Now they say over your child's cold, dead body. Come on, if you're going to use the dramatic quote, at least try to get it right. So there's the non sequitur. Second, false dilemma, false dichotomy. News media are notorious for presenting public opinions as a binary choice. You either do nothing or we pass federal gun legislation. Donald Trump does nothing. Paul Ryan does nothing. Mitch McConnell does nothing. Joe Scarborough recently said he threw in an ad hominem for good measure. Donald Trump has proven to be a coward. He's proven to be a small man. Scarborough was echoed by Representative Seth Moulton from Massachusetts, who told the president to get off his butt and work with federal lawmakers to pass gun control legislation. 
As John Miltimore writes, so in reality, there are many actions individuals, communities, parents, and local governments can take to help prevent school shootings. But media reports and pundits on television usually don't present these alternatives. By the way, for what it's worth, one of the best alternatives, one of the things you can do to help prevent school shootings, take a kid shooting. Teach them the responsible use of guns. Teach them the safety and the respect that you have to have for firearms as a tool. This is the approach that our parents used. We had access to guns, easy access to guns. It was nothing for me to come home from school, grab my twenty two and a box of shells, and my friend and I would walk a half mile or so to the city limits, go out and find a good ditch bank, set up some tin cans, and shoot. Nobody batted an eye. It's because we had to, we 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 were just as capable of you know uh, of doing wrong things as anybody, but we we were trained and we were taught show respect, show responsibility. Number three, logical fallacy, appeal to emotion. There's a tweet here showing David Hogg and some of the students from uh, Parkland. Their goal is hashtag never again. Hear much more from these these. I can't wait to share this on on CBS this morning. Children have been featured prominently in the gun debate, writes John Miltimore, both by news and networks advocating gun control and even the president himself. Why? Well, the answer is simple. As J.D. Tussiel recently pointed out at Reason, kids are pulled into political discussions by adults who want to trump debate and shame their opponents into acquiescence. So here's an example of how people in media appeal to our emotions to argue their points. There's a, a series of tweets here. One says, remove all access. End of story. Social experiment failed. Americans can no longer be trusted with weapons of war. Another person responds, weapons, ammo, limit access. You may prevent some shootings and lessen the severity of others. Just my view. And then you have this one. I choose my words carefully because I mean them sincerely. Guns are disgusting, despicable creations of human engineering, and ownership of them is creepy and disturbing. <laughs> That's an appeal to emotion, definitely. Number four fallacy is the straw man. This is probably the most common fallacy in modern debate that involves taking someone's point or argument and reducing it to a caricature that's easy to knock over. A case in point can be found in a recent column by Jerry Adler of Yahoo. In it, Adler mocked an article written by National Review's David French, which stated that the purpose of the Second Amendment was to defend liberty from potential state tyranny. Adler depicts French as defending assault-style rifles on the grounds that we might need them to fight a reprise of the American Revolution. He evokes the image of, invokes the image of middle-aged guys running around the woods in camo pants trying to go up against the Marine Corps. But French never mentioned the American Revolution or the Marines or middle-aged guys in camo pants. In fact, French explicitly states that an armed citizenry wouldn't be much use if it came to open conflict between the people and the state. Quote, the argument is not that a collection of random citizens should be able to go head-to-head with the 3rd Cavalry Regiment. That's absurd. Nor is the argument that citizens should possess weapons in common use in the military. Rather, for the Second Amendment to remain a meaningful check on state power, citizens must be able to possess the kinds and categories of weapons that can at least deter state overreach that would make true authoritarianism too costly to attempt. So instead of directly engaging French's argument that semi-automatic rifles are a more meaningful check on state power than sidearms or shotguns, Adler created a straw man. 
Now, what's interesting is Adler did this while admitting that French acknowledges ordinary citizens wouldn't stand much of a chance against the 101st Airborne and that there's little evidence that the 1994 federal assault weapons ban reduced gun violence. Number five is the bandwagon fallacy, also called appeal to popularity. The bandwagon fallacy is born of the idea that something's right or true or desirable because it's popular. Take this article, which recently appeared on Salon and featured the headline, Support for Gun Control Surges to Highest Level Ever as GOP Lawmakers Sit on Their Hands. The implication is that action should be taken because many people favor it, according to a poll. Here's a tweet from John Delaney that says, If the NRA opposes and uses its PAC money to block something that 97% of Americans support, then they are arguably an anti-democratic organization because they are blocking the will of the people. Now, such an action might be entirely appropriate, but the assumption that the opinion of the majority is prima facie evidence of validity, that's flawed logic. And finally, there's the faulty analogy, which assumes that two things, because two things are alike in some respects, they are necessarily alike in other respects. In the gun debate, it's very common to point to Australia's 1996 gun control legislation as a model for the U.S. It often runs like this. In Australia, gun legislation passed and gun deaths fell. Therefore, the U.S. should pass gun legislation. The problem is, as so many have pointed out, is that these nations are very different. Their legal systems, constitutions, histories, number of guns in circulation, etc., that any comparisons or predictions in gun policy are essentially useless. In other words, it's a faulty analogy. Again, this is an article, Six Logical Fallacies to Look Out For in the Gun Debate, from John Miltimore, who's the managing editor at Foundation for Economic Education, or fee.org. I will include a link to this article in the show notes for this hour of Loving Liberty. And I would encourage you to take the time to read it. I'll also have some great links to the story about uh, the uh, United Flight 232 crash in uh, Sioux City, Iowa, back in 1989, uh, in memory of uh, Captain Al Haynes, who just recently passed away. We'll talk about income inequality and have some links to a great article on that from Intellectual Takeout. And we've got another full hour still to come. So stay with me. I've got more things to uh, help you better understand the world going on around you as well as to provoke clear and independent thought. You don't have to agree with me either. The whole idea here is we're just trying to get you thinking. Thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 